You are listening to Life Improvement Radio on the Helium Radio Network. Hey everybody, Aaron Richmond here from Aaron's Opinion, the podcast for blind people, where we speak about critical issues in the blindness community from all over the world. How's everyone doing? Hope you're having a good day. Hope you're having a good week. Uh, Well, let's get right into it today. Uh, But of course, before we do, don't forget for text message and voicemail contributions, or you want to get in touch with Aaron's opinion, 1240-681-9869. Aaron's opinion6 at gmail.com. A-A-R-O-N-S-O-P-I-N-I-O-N-6 at gmail.com. Follow on Facebook, Twitter, even consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page, and even comment below on YouTube, where actually most of you watch on YouTube, so you guys really enjoy Aaron's opinion on YouTube, all right? Uh, Today's episode would not have been possible without our great friend in the podcast community, someone who has been on the show in the past. Um, Yeah, you remember her. She's, She's been on the show several times, Ashley Alpe, um, but more commonly known in the, I would say, in the content creation community, she's generally more known as her professional name, Your Canadian Blind Girl. So, Your Canadian Blind Girl, we couldn't have done this episode without you. Uh, as I understand it, um, and I forget the day when you did this, but it's it's quite entertaining. As I understand it, you went to some market and you ran um, into a Richard Stevens, a fantasy author to whom you apparently really like his books. Well, as a matter of fact, um, if liking his books isn't enough, I actually interviewed him in this episode for you. He did get back to me, and we had a wonderful, wonderful conversation. So today, or as I like to say, whenever you're listening to this, this is an episode where where we're going to talk a lot about fantasy and the art of writing books and it's very similar to podcasting and Richard really enjoyed it um he also oh yeah and he also is blind by the way which I didn't know that through the wonderful conversation I had with him it came out that he's blind and he had a wonderful career actually as a as a police officer in Canada and, and, and did a lot of really interesting things so writing for him is kind of like his version of a podcast the most interesting part of this episode and really the coolest thing ever um, was that one of the things that Richard does for his audience is he allows them to actually name characters in his books. And if he likes the character uh, or feels the need for it, he'll use it in a future book. So that kind of goes, it kind of goes without saying that this episode is called I Named a Dragon because I did. And I thought that was really, that was really cool. Uh, That's a really creative and just really touching way of of connecting with one person, you know, who's a reader. Similar to help one person today, uh, help a million people tomorrow, that type of thing. At any rate, um, the following episode was recorded on the 28th of July at 2000 New York. This is I Named a Dragon. The author today, or the special guest today in this episode, is Richard Stevens. I'm Aaron Richmond, and of course, this is Aaron's opinion. Um, And if it's a Thursday, it's definitely 12 o'clock. It's definitely time for Aaron's opinion on Life Improvement Radio on the Helium Radio Network. Well, I wanted to take this time to open the interview by thanking you. Richard, for joining me this evening. Um, My first question is this. So you're a fiction, as I have understood from looking at, you know, Ashley's YouTube channel from Your Blind Canadian Girl, I understand you're a fiction author. Um, I've interviewed one or two authors before, but certainly not many. So how did you my first question is, so what is your motivation for becoming an author and why did you choose to write fiction? I've always loved uh, writing. I've started writing when I was nine years old. I it was, you know, the long summer vacations as a child, uh, my friend and I were sitting around and we were bored stiff as uh, those summer vacations go. And uh, we both loved reading Hardy Boys by Franklin Dixon, They're old books written for, you know, young boys. And, uh, I, we were bored and we didn't know what to do with ourselves. And I, we know we looked at the books and we said, yeah, I think we could write one of those. So, you know, 
we set out and we started writing our own stories just to pass the time away. And I fell in love with writing at that point. And then uh, when I was about 16, maybe 15, I went to a local bookstore in downtown Cambridge, Ontario. And uh, I guess it was Cambridge at that point. I used to live in a little town called Gull, but it amalgamated into Cambridge. But anyway, I went to the bookstore and uh, the proprietor introduced me to Sword of Shannara by Terry Brooks and Lord Fowl's Bane by Stephen R. Donaldson. He said, uh, if you're looking for good books, read those. I'd never read fantasy before. Okay, so I took them home and I absolutely fell in love with fantasy. So my interest in writing changed from just uh, writing Hardy Boys mysteries and stuff like that uh, into fantasy. And I've written fantasy ever since. Outstanding, great, great. So how do you define fantasy, you know? Everybody has their own meaning, especially in today's world. You know, I'm from the States somewhere, you're from Canada, but we all have yeah. our different perceptions of fantasy. So to you, what is a fantasy? Well, I write high fantasy or epic fantasy. I think the two, uh, the two genres kind of uh, commingle and uh, they kind of go together. I would say that uh, George R. R. Martin's more high fantasy because he's got the, the conflict of the houses and uh, Terry Brooks is more uh, epic fantasy because he goes on quests, just like J.R.R. Tolkien. So I write more epic fantasy, but I, you know, I do have a, a bit of the houses, uh, different castles, and a, a bit of politics involved. But most of mine are all epic fantasy, in which case uh, I've created the land. I, I don't invest heavily into uh, creating fancy magic systems. It's fantasy in my world. Uh, magic is just inherent so you know I don't have to go to painstaking uh, levels to explain how he did this and how he did that and, you know it's just accepted that if you're a wizard you're a wizard and sometimes I'll put in you know he's enchanting little spells and that but uh, that's about as far as I would go with that so as far as uh, your question goes I, I guess uh, I'm fantasy because I've created my own world and uh, there's magic and there's dragons and there's elves and dwarves and everything that uh is you find in a traditional fantasy story. That's really good. That's really excellent. So what would you say are the characters or the types of creatures and characters and personas that you always like to include? I mean, in all of your books, do you feel that there are certain elements of a fantasy that have to be there? No, and actually when I first started my very first book called Soul Forge, and it's the one that uh, has led to this soul forge universe and it, it hadn't planned on it i had only planned to write a trilogy and there's two main characters there's two men and uh, i knew exactly how the story was going to finish how the trilogy would finish it took me 36 years to actually get it written and uh I, you know i had five kids and two careers uh so they took precedence over my writing but uh as i finally finished book one soul forge uh i i wanted to be realistic so, you know, it's not like the movie of The Hobbit where these guys fall in these mine shafts for like 50 to 100 feet and they just bounce off the next rail track and they're totally okay and they fight. So in my world, if you, you know, it's just like our world here. If you, if you fall 30 feet, it's probably going to kill you or mess you up pretty bad. So, and as far as uh, creatures and stuff, I didn't have a lot of mystical creatures in book one until we got later on to the story other than this great big alligator. But uh, halfway through book three, so this is like 37 years later, I already knew how the thing was going to end. For 37 years, I had a certain ending in store. And one of the main characters does something silly halfway through book three, and it just totally threw the ending out the window. And I didn't know what to do because now it could not end that way because of what that character did. So I had to come up with a new ending. So 37 years later, uh, a dragon came into the story. And that was my first encounter with a dragon. And at that point, I'm a thousand pages into this trilogy. And I'm thinking, well, I've got to explain to my readers why there are no mention of dragons up to this point. So once I finished the, uh, the Soul Forge trilogy, I went backwards. It's like you did in Star Wars in 1977, you had A New Hope, which is actually episode four. Then he went backwards and did uh, The Phantom Menace in the 90s. I'm doing the same thing. I went back and did the Legends of the Lurker, which is all about the dragons, and it explains what happened to the dragons and why they're not prevalent in the story 500 years later. So can you explain kind of 
in more detail what the story is of the Soul Forge and how it connects backwards then going, I guess, can you reverse the chronology and really detail the characters and the, and, and the personalities a bit? Yeah, I will try. Uh, it, it's funny as, as an author, when people ask you stuff, you know, you know, this book inherently it's, it's, it's you, but uh, when people ask you, you just kind of freeze and go, oh, I don't know. I'll just read the back of the book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, the main character, he's 45 and he's, I wouldn't say he's washed up. He's a, he's a forgotten hero. So, there's a story that takes place. I haven't written it yet, and that's another one I'm going to write. But in his youth, him, him and four others called the Group of Five, they saved the realm of Zephyr from this tyrannical sorcerer who was trying to take over Zephyr first because Zephyr is the mightiest kingdom. And once he had Zephyr, he could go on and take over the rest of the world. But uh, So anyway, he, uh, him and his Group of Five went in, saved the day 21 years before uh, Soul Forge actually takes place. So he's sitting in his hut when you first meet Slurian Mantaka, and he's a, a washed up, old, bitter, uh, forgotten hero. And when he returned home from saving the kingdom, he found his family had been slaughtered. So while he was saving everyone else's uh, families, no one bothered to save his. So he's very bitter and he wants nothing to do with Zephyr anymore. So anyway, uh, something happens where this sorcerer comes back. 21 years later, and it, it pushes the king to the brink of a disaster again, and the king is trying to find either Slurian, there's only two remaining group of five members left, Slurian and his friend Rook, and the king is desperately trying to find one of them to help battle the sorcerer again, and uh, they send an old man out to find uh, one of the other, because they figure this old man is the best chance of finding them. And he comes across Slurian and he convinces Slurian that uh, the kingdom's needs are greater than his despair of the people. So he uh, finally convinces Slurian to come back out. And Slurian's kind of a drunkard. He, you know, he's, his skills are rusty. And so he's got to find his way back into society. And his biggest fear is everybody's going to hate him because the queen died four years previous to the storyline. And everybody blames him for not being around. And that's why she died. So... It, it's just that it's soul forge is slurian trying to reforge his soul so through the next three books uh he starts to find himself again he starts to think that life's worth living again and, he's, and he starts to see that you know the people are actually worth fighting for it's not their fault that uh his family was murdered and anyway he uh he ends up going to the end of the book and saving the day excellent so good now how do you come up with these names uh, Slurian, interestingly, is uh, I looked it up in a dictionary. I, I, when I first started writing, like, I started Soulforge when I was 17. So I'm thinking, I want to come up with a neat name for the main character. And I went into a dictionary and I spent hours just flipping pages, flipping pages. And all of a sudden, the name Slurian uh, came across. And it's a, it means uh, it's kind of a nomadic tribe in ancient Europe uh, many thousands of years ago. They were named Silurian, and there's just a, a, a people that kind of traveled through Europe. And I just, the name just stuck. And Mintaka, his last name, I just made it up. Most of my names I just make up. I just throw a bunch of words together, a bunch of letters together. I think that sounds good. And interesting that you asked this because uh, I read a lot about dragons now, and I generally know the names of the main dragons in my stories. The main dragon is actually named after our cat. But uh, I, I invite all my readers to submit dragon names to me. And if I come across, if I come across a new dragon in my story I, and I don't know the name that I want to use, I will go through all the suggestions of my readers. And if uh, one resonates with me, I will use it. And then I will, you know, give them credit in the forward of the book that every time that their character appears. And uh, so I've got people from uh, Romania, from the States, all over the world that named dragons in my books. And I just say, oh, thank you to so-and-so for naming this dragon. And it's kind of a fun way to get back to the fans. That's that's cool. I, I love that. I, I love that. Um, mm -hmm. So can I put you on the spot here? So can I name a dragon right here on the podcast? You certainly can. Let me get a pen and I will write it down. It doesn't guarantee you're going to use it. but uh, And, and I keep telling people, do not use uh, the dragons from Game of Thrones or any other of these dragons because they're famous and they're taken i can't have smog <laughs> it's got to be something original how and it doesn't about, have to be fancy 
How about the name? Some of my favorite names. How about O's? How do you spell that? Oh, just O-Z. O's. Okay. That's, if I was to name a dragon, I would name a dragon O's for sure. What um, color? I even give that readers a chance to name the color, the gender, and even their alignment if they want. And sometimes I won't stick with it because I'll see the name and I figure, okay, I got to have it for this dragon. But uh, if, if I don't care and I'm just introducing new dragons, I'll give them the color that the reader wants as well. So what color is O's? Oh, he would be, he would be a black, a jet black dragon for sure. Yeah. Okay, now, there are black dragons in my story. And interestingly enough, if you're a male dragon and you're old, you turn black. So whatever color you were, as you age, instead of you know, like me, I, I've got gray hair because I'm getting older, dragon scales turn black. If you're a male, they turn white if they're female. So uh, is there another color that he might be before he turns black? He might be, I think he would be uh, silver, kind of a maybe a silver color. All right. Yeah. And as a male? Definitely. All right. And is he, what's his alignment? Is he, is he a good dragon or is he a nasty dragon? Oh, um, he would be. I got both. Can he be a, I don't know. Can he, can he be, be neutral a, if you want. Yeah, can he be a dragon that maybe has some, yeah, he's neutral and the reader has to figure out his, his path. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, because in, in the series that I'm writing now, uh, the High Cliff Guardians, it's all about the dragons and the, a secret sect of dragon riders, a clandestine sect of dragon riders, and uh, they're all elves. So the, the main dragon, uh, he's a very, uh, he's a curmudgeon, he's a very snarly old dragon, and uh, he's got certain rules that dragon riders have to follow. And as the series is going to evolve, these rules are going to get broken, and he's not going to be too happy about it. So uh, even though he's a good dragon, he's uh, <laughs> he's kind of a mean dragon. So, hmm. Well, thank you for that. That's that's a very it's an extremely interesting uh, way to allow readers of of your novels to to participate from all over the world. So then, if you have readers from Romania and other countries, how many languages have your books been translated to? Well, only in English. I haven't gone. I haven't uh, taken that step yet. I'm. Uh, it's just the, you know, the cost to have a translator do it. You know, they deserve to get paid well to translate it very well. And then, you know, how do I know that has been translated well? Because I can't read that language to begin with. So I'm a little hesitant to do that right now. If I had a publishing company, you know, I'd let them uh, look after it for me. But I, I haven't uh, crossed that bridge yet. So they're only in English. All right. So, huh? so and I find like Germany is probably the second or third biggest reading market. And most Germans, I should say most, but uh, a lot of the Germans just read in English anyway, because that's what the majority of the books uh, are written in. So, you know, the, my Romanian uh, friend who named uh, Scarlet Claus, uh, she's bought my books. I've shipped them to her. She's named the dragons in my stories. And uh, yeah, she speaks uh, quite, quite good English. So, mm -hmm. Good, good. So what is the age range of your audience? Like teenagers? Young, ad young adults, uh, anyone really, is there any particular age group that your, your books are most read by? I like to think I write for adults, but I, I write uh, very clean. So I always tell parents when they're looking for their uh, you know, uh, adolescents or young teens, uh, if they can read Harry Potter, they can read my books. Uh, like J.K. Rowling doesn't really write slang, teenage uh, YA fiction. She writes adult type narrative, uh, so to speak. So I, I know I've read some uh, wife, you know, where they use the slang and everything else. And uh, I just, I, this is not the proper term and I, I don't want to offend anyone, but I don't dumb the text down. As, and that's a very poor way to say that. And I just can't come up with a way to say that properly. As, and I don't mean it to dumb it down, but I don't make it sound for people who are 12 or 13, the way they talk, like I write for adults. So, but it's very clean. It's not like George R. R. Martin where you have your gratuitous sex scenes and where the hound is uh, dropping F-bombs all over the place. Uh, I had the odd uh, swear word throughout my series, but it's only if one of my characters gets very, very mad and 
you know, they're just an expletive like that is the only word that really hmm. gives it the emphasis, but that, that rarely happens. So, yeah. So I would say that my books are written for people of all ages. Great, great. You know, and actually I'm a teacher, by the way, I teach English as a second language. So sometimes oh. students come to me and ask, you know, for book recommendations or sometimes I like to think, you know, why do people write books in the first place? I think, and I would love your opinion, but I think books are written to tell us about the past, to tell us about the present or to warn us about the future. So do you think your books tell us about the past, the present, or are you trying to warn society of where we will go if we don't correct our wrongs today? I don't consciously put any thought into uh, any of those three scenarios, but I, I know uh, throughout my stories, I do uh, deal with present day situations uh, in a in a fantasy type way. So I deal with prejudices and uh, and you know stuff like that. So, so the conflicts uh, that have been going on in on Earth for thousands of years for whatever reason, and we just can't seem to get beyond them. I, I will deal with those in a fantasy type of way and try and explain it that way. So I you know there's prejudices and I have. Uh, all different races in my books. I have elves and dwarfs and half giants. I have white people and black people and I have Native American. And there's a story to that, or Aboriginal. I never know the proper way to say that, but uh, so, you know, I've got a whole bunch of different races in there. And I always try to uh, have the, the hero or the heroine uh, try to get across the fact that at the end of the day, they were all just people, you know, so everyone is equal. and. So they try to move beyond the prejudice that are even prevalent in the in the fantasy worlds. Really good. So when you do have to talk about prejudice, how do you engineer a an inappropriate not how but yeah, as, as an author, how do you engineer an inappropriate situation of prejudice in a book? How do you like how do you know when when the timing is right for for prejudice or something that would be a little um sort of get people, how do you tell when to include prejudice and where do you put it? And, and again, I, I, I don't set out to write any of these themes in the sure, books sure. at all. They just, sure. they just happen. So, but uh, the one, I wrote a novella just to cut my teeth on Amazon. It was actually the very first uh, piece of work that I actually published. And that was in 2017. And I had meant for readers to read it. I just wanted to learn the ins and outs of uh, getting on Amazon, learning how to you know, publish it and get paid and all those different things that uh, as an independent author, you have to learn. And so I put this book out and it's called The Royal Tournament. And it's just a, it's a book about a royal tournament. And uh, the one character, he's a, he's a farmer, he's a teenage farmer. He's very good at jousting and he's always wanted to not farm anymore. He wants to leave his father's farm. That's not what he wants to do with his life. He wants to go join the King's Guard and uh, the Royal Tournament he can never go to the Royal Tournament because it's always so far away from where he is. And it takes place in the fall when his dad needs him to farm his, you know, to harvest his farm. So he can't get there. But something happens and the Royal Tournament shows up in Millsford, which is Javin's hometown. So he can actually go and participate in the tournament and still do his duties for his dad. And he, he's just so mesmerized by the whole thing, by all the grandeur. But he's such, he's a, you know, a when I say simple farmer, I don't mean he's a simple person. He's just, a, he's, he's not, uh, he's naive to the ways of the world. So, you know, when he sees all these flamboyant knights come in and the revelry and drinking and everything else that goes on and these things, it, it's just a, an eye opener to him. It's such a wonder. And he's almost like Alice in Wonderland. And uh, he's never seen a black person before. <clears throat> and one of the knights is, uh, his name is Alcyon. And he's actually one of the group of five uh, later on that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he's one of the five that saved the, saved the kingdom long ago. But uh, so anyway, he sees uh, Alcyon in the tournament and this totally mesmerizes him. He's never seen a black person before and he's curious and uh, he ends up sitting with him at, at lunch. And he, even though Alcyon can't speak a lick of uh, his common tongue, he forms an instant bond with Alcyon and all the, all the things that he's heard in his lifetime about, you know, the prejudice against black people, uh, he's, he's wondering where it all came from because he, he's thinking, you know, he's going to experience this when he's talking to Alcyon and he doesn't experience anything. All he sees is a good person. And he starts to question uh, what he's been taught and what uh, the village and everything else has been 
you know, telling him all this time, and he's thinking, well, they're wrong. So anyway, Elcyon, uh, he uh, falls afoul of some prejudiced knight from a different jurisdiction who comes in, and I won't spoil the story, but uh, something bad happens to Elcyon, and Javin steps in and defends him, and at the end of the story, uh, well, I won't spoil the end of the story either, but that story is kind of, I guess, based on prejudice. I, I don't think I set it out that way, but that's the way it just happened. And I, I love the character of Elson. He's just such a nice, genuine person who's had to bear prejudice everywhere he goes just because of his skin color. Excellent. So I suppose these concepts, some of them kind of materialize exactly. as, as, as you're yep. writing, as it occurs to you and as the story kind of unfolds. Yeah, I'm no champ. I'm not a champion of any cause, really. I just, you know, I, I'm I'm over fifty, so you know, I've lived and seen a lot of things. I've I've worked in the police service, so I've seen the, the darker side of life as well. And uh, oh, and, excellent! You know, it's so good. Yeah, so so I don't try to write a theme about any of these things, but I know that these things are prevalent in society, so they should probably be prevalent in my fantasy society as well. Hmm. Hmm. Well, thank well, thank you for serving in the police force. That's that's excellent. I'm a very patriotic American, and I I, su I support great people like you. That's so good. Do, do, oh, you mind if you. I, do, do you mind? Do you mind if I ask in like in a very general sense what type of policing you did and how you got into that years ago? Yes, certainly. No, I uh, I worked in a bakery and a warehouse uh, for 22 years, and I only had a grade 10 because I had a child very early. And so I had to quit school and go working. And then uh, when I was in my 30s, I, had, I went back to school to get my grade 12 diploma so I could you know, do something different than working in a bakery. I wanted to expand my horizons and get more money and better benefits than that. And uh, someone else I worked with joined the police service as a special constable. And that's different than your regular police officer. And my issue was I'm blind in my right eye. So I've always wanted to be a police officer, but the police service has strict rules and they will not take you if you are blind in one eye, right? You have to have a, you have to have a certain visual acuity before they'll hire you, at least they did. And, uh, you know, if, if your vision goes afterwards and you start needing glass after you're hired, well, that's, that's okay, but they will not hire you before then. So I didn't think I could do it. And then when he did, I asked him what the vision requirement was. And he said, you need a 2060 vision with both eyes open. And I said, well, heck, I can do that. So I went and applied and a couple of years later, I, I joined the Wildland Regional Police Service as a special constable. So what we do is we work the court system. So we're kind of like the bailiffs that you have in the States. Mm -hmm. So we don't work on the streets. Uh, we uh, work in the courts. So we deal with all the bad guys that are incarcerated all the time and they're coming for trial. So, you know, the, the really bad people in society that are always locked up. And I did that for 12 years and I'm not a big guy. I'm not a big tough guy. So it really wore on me. and. Uh, my mental health was deteriorating quickly and uh, I retired uh, from the police service and with the loving support of my wife who supports us with her home business, uh, she's allowed me to write full time since then. So yeah, I, no, I, I'm like you, I applaud everyone that works in the police services in any kind of capacity, whether you're a prison guard or whether you're a bailiff or whether you're an officer on the front lines, you know, my hat's off to you because you do a tough job. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. So. But today, though, you would you're 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 cited today, though, right? I no, I uh, I was discovered when I was in kindergarten that I could not see out of my right eye, and I had no idea. You know, it's just I well, I don't know whether I was born with that or it happened huh. when I was very young. But huh. you know, so I never had any depth perception problems. It's not like I suddenly went blind in one hmm. eye later on and things changed. I didn't know any different. So I played sports. You know. With a hockey helmet on, trying to catch a puck on the right side, a little difficult for me because you know I really have to crane my head to see it. But uh, I, I get by. My my left eye, luckily, has uh, been good so far. I'm starting to need glasses now when I read books, but uh, I'm still doing okay. I see. I see. So, you know, what is your what would you say your visual acuity is in your right eye today? In my right eye, it I can barely see peripheral. I have detached retina, so it's taken oh. away. Oh, yeah, okay. detached right. retina. Yeah, yeah, no, so you are blind. Okay, because then you said something yeah. about 2060. Okay, so. With yeah. both eyes open. So so right. I could read a chart. Like okay. I could read a chart and it'd be 2020 with both eyes open because my left eye is doing all the work. 
that as soon as I close uh, my left eye, as soon as I close my left eye, I can't function. So if something were to happen to my left eye, I would uh, I would suffer greatly for sure. Or, right, right. Okay. So yeah, you yeah. If you're right, so in the states we would say that if you have retina, if your retina has detached, then you would you would probably call yourself visually impaired. You would call yourself blind. Yeah, yeah. That's that's really that's really interesting. Um, mm. I had three operations on it, and they they described the retina as a piece of wallpaper on the back of your eye, and it mine would detach and it rolled itself down. So if you can picture a wall of wallpaper rolling down, and they tacked it back up and. It took three times before they could actually stop it from tearing all the way down. So what it's done is it left me with a little bit of peripheral vision on the side of my right, like on the side of the right side. So if I close my left eye and it's bright lights, I can kind of see shadows if someone moves a hand. Sometimes I can count fingers. Sometimes, most times I can't count the amount of fingers they're holding up. But uh, straightforward, I don't have, I have no vision whatsoever, it's gone. Okay, well, um, and I and I have glaucoma. I was I was born blind, by the way. So actually, I did I did not know that about you, but that that is fine. Very very interesting. So, um, how do you go about writing? In other words, what software do you use to write? You know, to write your books for for the most part. How do you go about that? I'm what you call a panther. So, uh, I yeah, you know, I, I kick the character at the door, and I just write down uh, <clears throat> what he sees, and we discover the world together. So. When I'm writing a book, it's like I'm actually reading a book because I have no idea what's going to happen. Generally, I know how it's going to end, but I don't know how he's going to get there. Sure, sure. But, no, uh, no, no. I meant, I meant. But what I meant. No, was, I know. And, and yep. what soft? Oh, what software do you use to write to physically write the book? That's what I meant. Yeah. So oh, by okay. by doing by doing that, uh, I I use Microsoft Word, and that's mm -hmm. all I use to actually write on. But I, because my stories are going to be like thirty books long for the universe, it's you know, trying to remember whether someone is. Uh, a left-handed draw with a bow or has got green eyes if they're a minor character. I, I started using Excel spreadsheets with all these tabs on them. So whenever I have a new character, I'll start a new tab in Excel spreadsheet. And it might be very simple, like saying the name, the guy's name is Thonk. He has an eye patch and he's a big man. And that might be all that I never need to say about him because he might never come back in the story. But you know, three or four books later, all of a sudden, oh yeah, I'm gonna bring Thonk back in. I can't recall what he's so instead of looking through the books. I can just pull up my Excel spreadsheet and everything's right there. That's, that's it. That's excellent. Great, great. Now, how does the process, um, yeah, I was speaking in the past with someone else who's blind who wrote a book on Amazon, but how does the process uh, work as far as, you know, for the listeners that might've forgotten my interview in the past, how does the whole self-publish on Amazon and then getting it to Audible, how, how does that work? Yeah. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, Amazon doesn't cost you anything to actually upload to it. You have to go in and set up an account with them. And probably the biggest hurdle to publishing through Amazon is, uh, and especially for me as a Canadian, is filling out the financial forms to make sure that the money gets into the proper accounts. And because everything's done through Amazon.com, you know, there's Amazon.everything all around the world, but everything always comes back to Amazon.com. And being Canadian, we don't have all the perks and privileges that the Amazon.com authors have. And so the hardest part was the, the learning curve on how to get your banking information in there. And But as far as uploading, you know, I write in Word. I've had no problem uh, with my formatting. I format my pages before I even start the book. So I write a six by nine size book. I, my page is automatically six by nine before I even type the first word. So most of my formatting issues are already taken care of because the size is correct. A lot of people start on an eight and a half by 11 because that's what it defaults to. And you know they have all these fancy things going on under text and everything else. And when you go to publish that in a eight and a half by six or whatever, or nine by six, everything changes because you're changing the size of the book. So my, my biggest, uh, uh, hit to anyone who's trying to do it is decide beforehand what size your book's going to be when you print it. It doesn't matter an ebook, but when you go to print it and print, uh, just start writing in that page. And, and the, uh, other than that, uh, Word uploads to Amazon very nicely. And then the cover, obviously, you you know pay for a cover designer who knows what they're doing. And uh, when you when it's ready to upload to Amazon, 
uh, your cover is already ready because the cover designers are great at what they do. It's, that's taken right out of your hands as the author. And how do they I don't go, know if I answered your question there, but you, you did. Th thank you. You did perfectly. And how do they go about designing the cover, and what influence do you have on on that type of thing? For my first five books, I found an artist through Facebook, a writers group on Facebook, and he's from Italy. And I talked, started talking to him, and. I agreed to a price that he would actually design my covers. And so I took a scene from my book. I described the characters to that to him and uh, what should be in the background, what I see. And then I just left it in his hands and it was amazing. It was almost like he drew the pictures of my characters right out of my head. He did a great job. So he did them from scratch. Uh, since then I've, uh, you know, I'm getting into more Facebook groups and more cover groups and stuff like that. And I've seen some amazing pre-made covers. So. The cover designers made a cover and they got a generic title on it. And you can buy that if that fits what you're writing. So I buy a lot of pre-made covers as well because they fit my storyline. And then uh, I work with them to do books two and three where they'll kind of custom do the covers after that. But so, yeah, there's so many different ways you can get covers. You don't have to break the bank to get a cover, but you should get a cover that fits your genre so that when people first, I don't care what people say when they say you don't shouldn't judge a book by its cover. If I'm in, walking into a bookstore and I don't know Richard Stevens and you know, I'm just going to walk right by his books unless he's got a cover that makes me say, hey, what's that? And then I'll pick it up. Right. So I, I think a cover is very important. Sure. Sure. Do you, do you have one of the one of the print copies there just so I can see the cover? Do you, do you have one that I, I can see? I'm, I'm just curious what the covers look like. Yeah, I actually uh, let me just I think I can turn this around. There it is. I'm going to show it's going to take me a sec. So this is a cover that I haven't actually, I don't know if okay. you can see. Uh-huh. Uh so that's my desktop right now. So that's a full wrap cover there that I have it on there. And that one's called Nix's War. I don't actually have the printing on there, but that's my desktop. Right. And that is, that's one of the covers that I found. And that was a pre-made that someone made. So for the, now for the audio side uh, on the podcast, please, please, please describe, please describe the cover. Okay, so it's got a, a warrior elf, female elf, who's uh, looking contemplatively to the right, I guess, and she's kind of leaning on her sword. She's got one hand on the hilt of the sword and one gra grasping the, the blade of the sword, and that's in big. And then kind of going in front of her is a, a whole battlefield of uh, looks like bones and skeleton pieces and uh, a whole bunch of warriors on horseback in the distance behind her. And she's sitting uh, astride a white uh, horse with her burnt orange banner. And she's kind of looking into distance as well. So it kind of has her on that cover twice, which is really cool. And that's really, yeah, that's really detailed. That's a very interesting image. It, it's yeah. an awesome image. I, I haven't written that book yet. Well, well, that book I I'm think, going to be writing. Well, I, yeah. I think I think you should write it because that cover is that cover could tell a story. <laughs> See, I totally get what you're saying. That's cool. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then. So after you send it in, uh, how long how long does this whole process take of sending it in before it starts to really, you know, catch on and clear all of the um, parameters before it's actually available for people? Uh, as soon as you upload it, uh, Amazon says it'll be ready in 72 hours and they generally turn that around in less than a day. That's, inter that's interesting. Yeah, so, so, but you have to have all the pieces in play at first, obviously. So you're uploading your cover, your manuscript, you're setting the prices and all that. So all that's done in the background. And then when you hit publish, it's you're generally live within 24 hours. Do you suppose Amazon, well, actually, you kind of can't, you can't, cannot really answer because you don't work for them. But do you, have you gotten the impression that Amazon has people, like actual humans that are like reading over these submissions and for any author? Or do you think it could be AI? What's your like impression on how that works? I don't know how they do their quality assurance, but uh, I know uh, the cover image would be one thing. Uh, they don't like a lot of sexually uh, explicit things on the covers. They, yeah. will, uh, turn, they will turn those down. So if you have, you know, if you write erotica and your covers are that way, uh, you might have an issue trying to publish on Amazon. But uh, 
I think what they look for is they're looking for the, the metadata, which is your ISBN number, make sure that all matches and make sure no one else has it, make sure it's actually in use. And uh, they're, they're trying to make sure that your, your print is going to follow, uh, is going to fit properly, it's going to be formatted properly. They can tell right off the hop, I think that everything's formatted right. And that's, I believe, done through a computer as well, because it's got these little lines and your print can't be outside the lines. And there's different things with covers where it's got to be within certain guidelines. So I, I think it's a kind of half and half or maybe even more driven by uh, AI, but uh, there definitely is a human component in there, but uh, they must have a lot of people working for them, that's for sure. Yeah, because I mean, your your content is perfect. You know, you're you're really creative. Um, I mean, of course, you know, nothing personal. I really had no idea who you were or who you no. who you no, are. Not too many people do. But I'm I'm so glad because you're so you know you're so knowledgeable. You're so willing to talk about this genre of of of, of literature. I think this is really good, and I also think that it's especially good for blind people. Um, because I think a lot of blind people will will definitely take a look at at your content and read this. I think a lot of blind people like to be creative um, when they when they read things. It's it's a really really good escape for people. Um, but my point in saying that is, you know, any anyone could then come up to Amazon and just publish like any any weird little thing you know your mm -hmm. your 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 stuff is your stuff is normal your stuff is not weird but i'm saying like you know any other joe schmo could come up and then push publish and then it would be like okay it met all the requirements like i would have yep. to wonder at some level they would have to have a person kind of take a glance like read the first four sentences you know right i i, I don't know i'm just kind of fascinated by that you know yeah, no, I don't think they care. And, you know, as as long as you meet their guidelines, that they because it's up to you uh, or it's up to the the buyer whether they actually buy it. Just so just because I publish it doesn't mean anyone's going to buy it. So right. And they also have a thing called Look Inside. So a feature called Look Inside. So if you look up my book, so if you looked up uh, Keeper of the Jewel, which is the book I just published, it'll have a Look Inside feature, and it'll show you probably the, I'm not sure how many pages, it's probably the first 10 pages. So you can actually get a feel of the writing and get a, you know, see the forward matter in that. And you can decide from that point, you know, do I like the style of the writer? Do I not? You can move on. So if, if this guy that you're talking about that just writes weird junk, you know, and it's, it's amazing what some people might think is weird. Other people love it. So sure, you know, sure. there's there's always a niche in there for everyone. And so you know, this guy might write, write weird stuff, but there's probably a bunch of people that like his weird stuff. You know, and they wouldn't like mine at all. They're like, oh, I don't like this guy. He's he's too clean. He just writes boring epic fantasy. <laughs> you know, they want something different. So uh, I, there's there's something there for everybody. But uh, as far as you can publish whatever you want, there is a minimum guideline for a print book. I think in Amazon is about 34 pages long. You can't be any less than that. Otherwise, you can't print it. I guess they can't handle that in the printing places. But other than that, there's and you know you can't as long as you don't have the erotic stuff on on the cover, then you can pretty well publish yeah. anything you want. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, I would think I would have thought that Amazon would have worked like YouTube, where you set your content for like, yes, it's made for kids. No, it's not made for kids, that type of thing. So if someone does want to publish erotica or, um, you know, sexual content, I would think that they would be able to just push a button and it just goes, okay, this is the adult content. We just won't, we'll still publish it. We just won't show it to, to younger audiences. That's how I would think that would work. But, yeah. And I, you know, I'm no expert on that. So I, yeah, you could be sure. right. They could, they could actually do that. Uh, and, but bear in mind too, that if you know that uh, you are, writing a controversial subject, whether it's erotic or whatever, you know, that's not really controversial, but you know, if you're writing something that might offend somebody else and you don't put a trigger warning on the cover or in the blurb, like, so the, when they look up Keeper of the Jewel, if I had explicit sex scenes in there, I should probably say there's explicit sex scenes in there because if I don't and someone buys it, I could really offend them. And what's going to happen is they're going to write a horrible review and that's mm -hmm. going to affect me more than anything. So uh, you know, I don't want horrible reviews just because they didn't realize, you know, if I write erotica that there's sex scenes in there because, you know, what else would be in that book, right? But as long as you say, you know, there's a trigger warning in there saying, you know, warning, this is for 18 plus or be, ex you know, explicit sex. Yeah. Then there's your warning there. And yes, I think everybody who 
as anyone, and they've published books, they will put that in there just to avoid the negative reviews. It's kind of like marking this podcast as, as explicit, similar to that, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Like yeah, if, that. If, you, if you and I were swearing all the time, then you might say, uh, you know, aggressive language or whatever, just uh, so you people know, would are, you, like Richard, would you believe that this podcast, I'll, I'll tell you a little, a little anecdote that you can relate to it. Uh, this podcast, when it began a couple years ago for blind people, I actually didn't mark it as explicit at first until, <laughs> until I interviewed a, a retired blind prison guard who, okay. who talked yeah. about, who talked about uh, rape and, and almost getting killed by a gang member in a prison. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't really for children anymore. So from that, from there on, I figured out my, my content is, is explicit and, and, and not for children. And it's not, I, um, I'm very strict about that. Every video is, you know, not for children on YouTube. And one of the secret requirements of Baron's opinion is you have to be 18 years or up to be, to be interviewed. So, you know, yeah, you de you definitely have to be careful about that type of thing. So that's yeah, really, for sure. Yeah, really fascinating. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, I know that you don't really write science fiction, but I did. Still, oh, you did. Oh, you did. Oh, I did. I did before I, before I fell in love with fantasy, but I've never published it. So I've got oh, a you're you're killing. Oh, you we got you got to come back to that and publish that because. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I, I have an interesting, I have a critical question about science fiction. Um, I've read a lot of science fiction and I, I really love science fiction um, because I think that science fiction is either an exaggeration of our lives or a minimalization of our greatest nightmares. So what are you trying to hide or what are you trying to exaggerate when you wrote science fiction? Uh, when I wrote science fiction, I, I was like, I was young then. I was, I was a young teenager. I, so in 1977, Star Wars came out. I wrote science fiction because Star Wars came out. I just fell in love with the movie Star Wars. I was a Star Wars geek, buff, everything. I knew everything about Star Wars. I even had an album that had the soundtrack on it back in 77. So I could just listen to them talking. And so it just had, you know, it wasn't, it was, wasn't like a VHS where you could watch the movie. This is just an album, so you just heard them talking. There was no visuals in there. And I listened to that over and over and over again. So I knew uh, I could pretty well recite the whole movie. But uh, so I, I loved uh, Star Wars and I wrote, uh, you know, I was still a young teenager. So I, uh, what have I been? I've been 12 then. So I, I started writing a, a science fiction book, but all the characters are just all my school friends. <clears throat> and we were uh, flying around the galaxy, trying to save the galaxy from, uh, an evil guy who was kind of like Darth Vader, except uh, he was one of my teachers instead. So, <laughs> but so I, I didn't good. have any political or any kind of motivation when I was doing that. I was just trying to write uh, like a shoot 'em up story, just like uh, Star Wars was a new hope. So yeah, I, I had no uh, back meaning to it at all. So you aren't really into like the science fiction that's like the horror science fiction of the States. You aren't really into that kind of niche i guess right or no I, I i like asimov i like heinlein i like herbert i like uh you know all the older science fiction uh clark uh all those i, I david kelly is actually a, a canadian science fiction author that uh you should actually you can get him on your podcast at some point uh he'd be a great interview as well he writes science fiction you'd love him but uh so he might uh, be able to expand on what you asked me because i I just wrote that because I love science fiction. I love Star Wars. There was no other motivation to that. Sure, 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 sure. No, we have, you know, authors, famous American authors, um, you know, the King, King guy who wrote a lot of scary, like a lot of scary science fiction things. Oftentimes I wonder, you know, are those, are, is the author exaggerating experiences or are they just trying to minimalize the bad experiences they have? I don't know. It's, it's just kind of an interesting thought. I don't know. I think sometimes it's both, but it, it, it of course depends. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's, that's really, that's really fascinating. Have you considered writing, writing a book about all of the crazy experiences you had working in the court system as a police officer in real life? No, you know what? I, I, I wish I had uh, taken the time to write it down, uh, but you would not believe, and I won't go get into it, but uh, 
Uh, my eyes this, are open. This, this this podcast is marked as as explicit, and I've heard it all. So, no, you, no, I, I I can't be scared. Trust me. I no, I'm not trying to scare you, but uh, I could not believe uh, how many people were that bad and the things that they would do behind cell doors and I you know, and when I came home at night, I did not want to bring it home with me at all. I would not tell the family what I've seen, and it's just. I would never believe a human being capable of doing the things that these people do. And it's not the odd person. Like there, we deal with some days we deal with up to 80 prisoners a day and not all of them are like that, mind you, but uh, a lot of them, uh, a smaller percentage of them were, but uh, you know, we'd have to segregate them. We're fighting with them all the time and they're spreading things all over the cell that uh, mm -hmm. from different parts of their body that you would just, ugh, and you, know, you go, it's just so disgusting that I, you know, I didn't want to think about it when I got home. And I would never, I didn't want to tell my family about it because uh, I didn't think they needed to know that. And so I never did actually write that stuff down. Maybe I should have, it would have been an interesting story, but it's not something I liked. And that's why I got out of the police services. I would just, for me, it was, it just wore on me. Like yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy going to work after a while. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I see. Sure, 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 sure. But it's still, it's very, it's very interesting, actually, a lot. The sad truth is a lot of people would read that type of thing. Oh, no doubt. And truth truth is stranger than fiction. There's no doubt. Like, you cannot write anything that is stranger than the stuff I saw. You yeah, cannot, no, I can, you... I can actually, I can believe that the scariest thing someone could ever tell me is the truth. And yeah, I've no, exactly. Of... No, that is so true. Because you, you just can't fathom that people actually are capable of doing these things. So, yeah. You just think, oh, that's someone had to make that up. So and in no, in other uh, so in other words, some of the things that you saw, it would have been like at, at the level of like the states, like how bad the people are in the American system, right? Like that bad, right? Oh yeah, no, for sure. Like the people that we deal with were that were behind bars, like they were what we call rounders, where they're constantly in the system. And mm. so and the Canadian Canadian laws are awful. Like we give them a tap on the wrist and away they go again. And the the poor uh regular police officer has to go and wrestle in the ditch with him a few days later and bring him back and hopefully he hasn't harmed someone else in the interim so yeah 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 i've spoken to a lot of blind people from canada they they've had a lot of complaints about the, just you know the whole canadian social system and all the way that things are supposed to work in canada they they there's a lot of um disgruntled people there's a lot of disgruntlement with the system in canada for sure yeah yeah, I think you'll find that all over the world, depending where it doesn't oh, matter where you are. You know, you're sure. always going to see, we always, as human nature, we always see the negative things. You know, sometimes we concentrate too much on the negative things and we don't appreciate the positive things. So, of course, I think that's just normal for any society. Mm -hmm. Of course, of course. Um, and so now, um, and she's, and oh, yes, go ahead. Mm. I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. So, and back to my odd connection with the lady, um, Ashley Alpe, who you met in the market. She, she's been on my podcast many times. We're, we're kind of good acquaintances. Um, so, I mean, like, did you like know that she was blind? Like that, that's kind of a cool interaction. Do you mind like, telling me what that interaction was? It's kind of weird and kind of interesting. Yeah, I think it was actually the first day I set up at the, at the marketplace and I have an indoor stall. So I have like a 10 by 10 spot with two tables three tables actually one I sit behind and I write so uh, when I don't have sales uh, because it's not a book market it's just a, a farmer's market so not everybody's a reader and hardly any of the readers are fantasy readers so I don't get a lot of traffic in there and but there's not much room in my booth and but no I, I knew she was uh, at least visually impaired because she was walking with a stick with the, with the cane and a little ball in the end you know so she's okay but yeah, uh, yeah. And she had someone else she had a couple people with her and I could just tell you know, I, I just knew that uh, she was visually impaired for sure. I didn't know what, to what extent. And, uh, but, you know, other than if she didn't have the cane, I would have no idea. Hmm. In, in, at that point, uh, you know, and, and, you know, after you talk to someone for a while, you, you start picking up on the cues. But no, I, I would have no idea other than the, the cane that she had. I see. I see. Now, uh, and um, had she already like read your books or did, did she basically just walk over to you and like, introduce herself no she uh, they stopped i've got these uh stand-up banners they're six foot high banners that has got different uh cover pictures on them so, you know just so people know what i write and uh, they stopped outside my booth and they were looking at the one uh it's actually it was uh, 
I'll show the viewers here that uh, this is the picture on the banner. It's a it's a dragon with uh, Odling Wise, who's the character that I'm writing about now. She's a queen. Of, she's going to be a queen of the elves, but that's her dragon Keith behind her, and that's that's actually on that banner. And they were looking at that, and then uh, someone must have mentioned my name to Ashley, and she goes, "I know him," and that obviously made me perk up. I'm thinking someone actually knows me. <laughs> I don't get that too often. So that that was kind of cool, and then. Uh, so then she turned back, she turned in the booth and she started talking to me. And then when they, they told her that I was there and she thought that was kind of cool. And, uh, and she said, she's, uh, heard my audiobooks. I've got uh, seven or eight audiobooks out now. So she's listened to at least one of them. So she knew me and I thought that was really cool that someone actually know of me. So we had a bit of a conversation and they, then they left and a little while later, all of a sudden they came back again and she wanted to take a picture with me. So that was kind of cool too. I always, so it was kind of neat that somebody actually wants to take a picture with me. So uh, we took that's a picture it. together. Yeah, that's, so it was that's, fun. That's, that's, that's adorable. That really yeah. is adorable. Yeah, that's so cool. No, she was great. As, as an up and coming, as a, you know, someone who's been writing, you know, basically it's seen the impression I'm getting is that writing for you has just been a hobby for, for most of your yeah, life. Yeah. It's been something you've enjoyed to do. And now you're getting, you know, getting some recognition. So that I, I, I support you. I support that idea. That's, that's really cool. I mean, the fact that someone wants to take a picture, you know, that's cooler than, in a sense, that's cooler than mm -hmm. the book itself. That's more exciting was, than yeah. the actual book. Yeah, that's. Um, no, you know that, and that's what fuels my writer's muse is, you know, when I wrote for uh, 35 years, I never really thought about publishing my book. Like I was born in 65. So the, the opportunities to actually publish a book you know, unless you knew somebody or you were just a phenom or, you, you know, I had a career and I had to support kids and everything else. I didn't have time to uh, devote to writing. So it was just a pastime for me. The odd time I'd break it out and it was on an old typewriter. I started on a typewriter. So then I had to transfer everything into computers when computers started becoming mainstream in the late eighties and early nineties. But, uh, you know, I still never thought I'd actually publish it. I just wrote because I like to write and then I'd read them to my kids. So uh, we'd sit down at night, and those are the stories. As they got older, I'd, I'd read them, my you know stuff in my books. And uh, my daughter, a funny story, my daughter, one of my books gets pretty dark at the end. I, I never cross any lines, but it gets to the point where it, you think you're going to, and uh, it gets pretty dark. And she got up from the bed that when I was reading it one night. And I said, where are you going? She goes, I can't listen to this anymore. And <laughs> she went to bed, so she wanted to hear it anymore. So I scared her out of the room. That's cool. That's, yeah. So, so maybe, maybe you could dig back into science fiction and really scare people. I don't, I don't know. Well, that was uh, a fantasy story. That yeah, 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 uh, yeah. That's really interesting. Have you, um, have you thought about you know getting onto YouTube, getting into podcasting, anything like that? I actually, I have a Lurking for Legends show every Tuesday night at eight o'clock. So, myself and uh, American. Uh, She's a Victorian suspense author. She actually now, I, I think I'm wearing off on her. She's writing a historical fantasy. She just started doing that. Uh, we do a, a, it's called a live video cast. So it's, and it's called Lurking for Legends. And we invite people from all walks of the publishing world. So you can be an author, a cover designer, a narrator. I've had my narrator on there. Anything to do with the, the, the book industry, we invite them on and we'll speak to them for 45 minutes every Tuesday evening from 8 till 8.45 Eastern Standard Time. And it's streamed on StreamYard through my Facebook channel and her Facebook channel. And then we stick them up on our YouTube channels. So we've got about, uh, I think there's 27 episodes up there now. We just started at the beginning of this year and we're booking into February next year. So it's going pretty good. Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Well, if you want, you can definitely send me that page or something like that so I can take a look at it. That that would be really interesting to see that. Yeah, definitely. I, I will do that. I'll send you the YouTube. Yeah, sure. uh, I'll send you the YouTube link and you can uh, follow sure it on thing. there for sure. Sure thing. Sure thing. Um. So as so, are all of your books up on Audible? By the way, not all of them are on Audible yet. Uh, we're working on it. Uh, Legends of Lurker series is individually all three are up plus the box set. So you can uh, just you can get the bigger one. Uh, the Soulforge Saga is all three plus the box set. The Bainbridge Companion novels, which is a story about one of the side characters. I, I asked one of my, I asked the readers what <clears throat> side character they'd like to hear a story about. And uh, predominantly they chose a, a girl named Sadira because she's cheeky, 
but she's got a dark backstory. And uh, they wanted to know what the dark backstory is because I never do tell anyone what it is. So I wrote the dark backstory of Sidira and uh, when she was growing up. So that is uh, because those books are a bit smaller and if to be successful in Audible, you need to have an audiobook that's you know probably 10 hours or more. Mm -hmm. I, I just combined all three books in that series as one big box set. So I've got three box sets and six books out on Audible. Mm. And we're working on that. That's what I do all day now. My narrator keeps sending me five to six chapters a day, and I have to keep I have to keep editing them just to make sure the narration's right. So I spend most of my days right now. Uh, we're narrating Keeper of the Jewel, which is a six hundred page beast. Excellent. I want to take this time to say we're starting to run out of time. I, I really, I really, really appreciate you joining me this evening. Um, well, I appreciate you asking yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. Um, but of course, as I ask all guests here at Aaron's Opinion, whether you're an author or not, if you can ask me only one question to really make me sweat to see if I'm, you know, worth my salt as a podcaster, what do you really want to know about me? I don't know about you. I'm not really good at acting on the spot. Uh, have, are you planning on writing a book or have you written a book? No. Um, Why not? I, I because I have a podcast, I guess. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right? If you're already on, a, if you already have a podcast and a teaching job and and all sorts of crazy things, um, you know, I don't know. Um, but I have you thought about it? Let's say, let's put it that way. Have you thought about it? No, I would say no. Okay, well then, if it's not something that you would love to do, then don't. Uh, yeah. And Ashley, I know Ashley said that uh, she'd mentioned that. To me when we we're talking that she had uh, started writing a book and then she stopped and she didn't know whether she's going to keep doing it and i said you know what if you don't write that book i said we can't read it so just do it and hopefully uh hopefully she'll start writing it again uh, you know if, if you love to write then write and but if you don't then <laughs> by all means don't do it keep doing your podcast do what you love yeah, follow your definitely. dreams and that's one of the themes in the legend of lurkers follow your dreams Definitely. And so how could someone get in touch with you uh, if they're listening to this episode? Uh, I have all my books are on Amazon under Richard H. Stevens. And, uh, but you can look me up at uh, my website at www.richardhstevens. And Stevens is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S, richardhstevens.com. And uh, all my books are listed on the website there. And actually, if you go on my website, you can actually get a free copy of the book Lorena in its first draft uh as i've got the first draft uploaded there and it's uh, given away as a free book so gives you a bit of a sample of what i write it doesn't have dragons in it it's a it's a, like it's part of that side story of sidera so but so you're welcome to do that and uh other than that so yeah i'm on amazon and uh, i do ship signed books around the world uh, and they can get a hold of me by email through richard h stevens again stevens is ph richard h stevens one at gmail.com and just send me an email and I'll ship them wherever you want. Uh, just Canada Post is atrocious for cost. It costs me as much to, to ship the book as it does to sell the book. So bear that in mind. <laughs> yeah, it's awful. So so you, you kind of lose money if someone wants a book shipped to them. <laughs> oh no, the, no, the, the person will be paying for the shipping. I see. I oh see. yeah, no, I don't lose money on the book. No, don't worry. I, I've shipped them to, uh, like I say, I've shipped them to Romania. Yeah, and uh, and it's not it's not cheap. I think it costs about eighty five dollars Canadian, which isn't quite as expensive as American. That's probably about sixty dollars American, but still, it's pretty pretty expensive. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, that is all the questions I have. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me, and uh, keep up your keep up your great work. So, oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the, you reaching out to me. My pleasure. You've been listening to I Named a Dragon right here on Aaron's Opinion, the podcast for blind people, where we speak about critical issues around the blindness community, or of course, on Life Improvement Radio on the Helium Radio Network. Either way, that was a great episode. Richard, you did a great job. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You know, you really didn't know me at all. Um, only through the mutual connection of your Canadian blind girl did you know 
um, you know, were we able to make such a great recording out of this? So that I, I really enjoyed learning about fantasy writing and the art of publishing books from you. And I wish you the very best of luck. Click the link in the description for more information um, about Richard's website and where you can take a play, take a listen, or even buy some of his books. So it sounds really, really good. All right. Um, I want to take this time to wish you all from the audience all over the world the very best of health and very best of luck. Very best of health and luck to you, Richard. And I hope that uh, from this interview, more and more people will know about your great work and your great books. And I also thank you to the Helium Radio Network for syndicating Aaron's opinion. We really, really appreciate it a lot. Very best of luck to everyone else. As I like to say, one two four zero six eight one nine eight six nine. Aaron's opinion six at gmail.com. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. Comment below on YouTube. Even consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page. Thanks so much, everybody. Help one person today. Help a million people tomorrow. Aaron Richmond. Aaron's Opinion. Life Improvement Radio on the Helium Radio Network.